I think it's so powerful to just recognize that you are not your brain. So you have a relationship. That's part of your relationship with yourself. There's your brain giving you thoughts and you, the wiser, greater you, have choices. And so I talk a lot about talking back to your brain. You do it. I always tell you, you do it firmly, but kindly because your brain is part of you. So you're not like being mean to it, but we have to recognize that at its core, our brain only cares about one thing. It only cares about our survival. And that's wonderful because I like being alive. It's a beautiful experience. But that also means that we have to recognize that our brain doesn't really care about our thriving and which is why I think we are here. We're not here to survive. We are here to thrive, to live, to experience, to do, to create. Burnout has become one of the most talked about workplace and life topics, and its impact is far-reaching. We have been hammering away at the subject, especially at the beginning of this year. But too much of the conversation does focus on the problem versus what we can actually do to break free from burnout. And in her new game-changing book, The Awesome Human Project, Natalie Kogan makes a compelling case that while challenges in life are constant, struggle is optional. She offers us proven science-backed and engaging methods to help us break through this cycle of daily burnout, as she defines it, methods which have already transformed over a million people and counting. And Natalie's book, it's intensely personal and written as a response to her own journey as a refugee who viewed struggle as a way of life. But after achieving tremendous success in the corporate and startup worlds, Natalie suffered a debilitating burnout, which taught her a powerful lesson. You can't give what you don't have. We are delighted to have Natalie on for our 100th episode and as our final guest for the first quarter of 2022. Natalie Kogan, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you both. Yes, we're excited to have you. We're excited to chat with you and share with our listeners all about your new book. Um, so I'm excited to learn to learn more about that. The Awesome Human Project is an awesome book. <laughs> and you know, you begin, Natalie, by telling us a little bit about yourself, about uh, how you came to the U.S. with your parents as refugees when you were 13 and didn't even speak English. So could you expand a little bit on that experience? I, as I was reading it, I was I was wondering a little bit more of the circumstances. Why were you all leaving um, and, you know, and how that connects to some of the lessons that you then learned? Yeah, of course. And especially given about the terrible things going on and the war in the Ukraine, it's all very timely. So I grew up, although my daughter will tell you, I never really grew up, but let's just <laughs> chronologically. Right. Um, yeah. I grew up in the former Soviet Union. It was the Soviet Union at the time. We left right before the collapse. And uh, we left uh, for one reason. So we're Jewish. And at the time, there was an official policy of persecution against Jews. So it was actually, as a Jew, it wasn't your religion, which I know is a little bit challenging. Like we have a different concept of it in the United States. It had nothing to do with religion. Being a Jew was your nationality. And you were considered a, officially a second-rate citizen. Um, we didn't enjoy the same rights. There were quotas for Jews in schools and universities and tremendous amount of persecution. 
So my parents, I mean, my entire childhood was always, we were trying to leave. It was impossible to leave a communist country. But finally, in May of 1989, um, they allowed a few hundred thousand Jews to leave. So that's why we left. And we spent two and a half, so we were allowed to just bring ourselves two suitcases per person and $200 per person. So mm. I'm an only child. There were three of us. You guys, listeners, do the math. Um, everything else, we, you know, we left behind with our family and friends. And we spent two and a half months in refugee settlements in Europe, which the Americans had set up, applying for permission to get refugee status to enter, um, which we did eventually and were incredibly grateful to get. So uh, my American dream began in the projects and public housing outside of Detroit in a little city called Ypsilanti. Um, where we were, again, very lucky and grateful to get food stamps and welfare to get us started. But this was the dream, but also the scariest thing, as you can imagine. I mean, we, I hardly spoke English. My parents hardly spoke English. We knew nothing. We, we just, everything was new and unfamiliar, and um, it was overwhelming. And as a, you know, I have a 17-year-old daughter, and I always joke with her, you know, when you're a teenager, you think it'd be really fun like if you could be in charge, well, when that actually happens, it's not fun. It's actually really traumatic to see your parents not as your guides and protectors, but as clueless as you are. You know, kids were making fun of me in school for how I spoke, and they were making fun of my father, who is a PhD, for how he spoke at his work, right? So it was an incredibly challenging experience. Um, and, you know, I, I say that it's been 32 years um, and I'm still a refugee. It's not an event. It's uh, a defining, it defines my being. I'm a refugee before I'm a woman, mom, entrepreneur, mm -hmm. writer, author. It is the defining part of who I am. Um, and uh, I, I feel both grateful for the perspective and the lessons that I learned, but some of them have been challenging. So you asked how it's impacted me. You know, one of the things I learned as a refugee was that I thought life was meant to be a struggle because coming here as a refugee was a lot of struggle. And then I struggled a lot to, you know, to do everything from learn to how to speak English, to figure out how to be smart again, to figure out, you know, how to get jobs and all that. And it kind of cemented in me this idea that life is supposed to be a struggle, that if you're going to do anything meaningful, have a meaningful career, have a positive impact on the world, that means you got to struggle. And, you know, we Russian Jews are also really good at struggling, naturally, and so it just kind of piled on. And that was a huge, like, kind of life philosophy that I took on. So, you know, over the next 30 years, I built an incredibly successful career, and I took care of my family and did all kinds of amazing things that I'm very proud of, but I struggled. I never took care of myself. I thought that was ridiculous because I thought you were meant to struggle. So, you know... Uh, the other thing as a refugee, I kind of took on this idea that it was me against the world. I kind of really like this mentality that I'm alone. I'm a lone warrior. I have to figure out everything out on my own, which also um, was a very difficult way to live. Um, you know, it kind of, it made life a lot harder than it actually was because my perception was constantly of kind of being in this hostile world. So those are a couple kind of themes that I know we're going to get there that eventually brought me to a really difficult time in my life. Um, and then there's some really beautiful things that being a refugee has instilled in me of just, uh, as my daughter likes to say, there's nothing that I consider like impossible. Any challenge, my attitude to it is like, all right, let's figure it out. How did you, 
how, Natalie, how did you unlearn some of that though? You know, to think about um, how central to your identity, Mm. I would imagine that some of those concepts were, how did you unpack that and learn that so that you could move into the work you're doing today? Well, it was the answer is one and the same. I didn't intentionally. I didn't know how to unlearn that. It was I was helped by something really difficult. So several years ago, I went through a really debilitating burnout. And when I say burnout, I know it's a word we use a lot and we all experience it differently. For me, it was a burnout from all the struggle, from treating myself in a really harsh way and from this constant view of the world as a hostile place. It was really, I call it in my book, a breakdown of my being. And it was that really difficult, dark experience that was a blessing in a way because for the first time in my life, I acknowledged these things I just said. I never acknowledged them. I wasn't aware mm-hmm. of them. I lived my life from the neck up. You know, it's just how I was brought up. So it was going through my burnout and then trying to think of a different way to be that I actually came to see that this is how I see the world and this is how I see myself. And then tiny step by tiny step, mostly in the wrong directions and sometimes in the right directions, I had to essentially, for the first time in my life, create a more supportive relationship with myself, which Mm -hmm. is what I've then dedicated my whole work to. So it wasn't like one day I decided to, you know, change how I was. I, you know, the universe hit me over the head with a two by four and I was kind of forced (laughs) Sometimes it it. has to, right? Yeah. Well, interesting. Shelly has a lot in common with that story, (laughs) which you may or may not want to share a little bit. But you know what? Here's what I think. So what's interesting a little bit, uh, Natalie, with your burnout story is that it was ironically or paradoxically your your sense of struggle, which led you to learn English so well that you spoke it without an mm-hmm. accent and to become a, a powerful person, a leader in, in a lot of the places where you ended up uh, working. And so I guess, could you then, because I know this is an important part of your book and, and what you've been talking about is how is struggle then, how do you define it differently than mm. challenge? Yeah. Mm. And that, what you're, you know, what you just astutely point out, it's exactly, that's exactly the crux of it, right? So, you know, I spent, um, and Shelly, I know you work with a lot of startups. Happier is a fifth startup that I founded. So I spent 15 years in tech startups and it was like this, like this culture of like, the struggle is real, you know, man, like that was kind of, and here's the difference. Challenge is real. Challenge is a feature of life. It's not a bug. Life is challenging. Being human is hard. We have, I mean, look, we've just gone through a pandemic. I mean, that's a huge challenge, but there's challenges every day, right? We can't do anything about them. They're external. Um, We don't have control. So challenge is real in life. Struggle is your inner experience of the challenge. Hmm. And struggle is optional. We can reduce how much we struggle internally through any challenging experience in our lives. And the thing is, when, and this is, we do this by practicing our emotional fitness skills, which is what I had to learn at 40, just to be really open. But when we reduce how much we struggle, it doesn't just help us feel better, which I think is a wonderful goal. Like life is not to be suffered through, but it's not just that. We as human beings have a limited amount of energy, right? This is, you know, part of my healing from burnout is having humility to recognize that I am not a superhuman. I'm not a superwoman. Not, nobody listening is. We're humans. 
We have a limited amount of emotional, mental, and physical energy. And struggling internally takes energy. So when we learn how to have less of internal struggle, we have more energy, more of our capacity, intellectual capacity, decision-making capacity to actually bring to the challenge, to actually help ourselves and other people work through it. And understanding that difference has been absolutely life-changing for me, which is why, you know, I changed my entire life to share this with as many people as I can find. Mm-hmm. You, so we, you and I um, say something similar um, I think one of your mantra here is, um, you can't give what you don't have, mm-hmm. uh, which I love. And I, I often, I liberally you quote, say it a lot. well, I do, I actually quote Parker Palmer, who's a writer and activist. Yeah, I know him um, very well. I love Parker. Yeah. He, his quote is, um, burnout's not about giving too much. It's about giving what you don't possess. Mm. And I don't know about you, but that was, for me, that was a lot of the inner work I had to do in recovery. Mm. Um, and so I'm curious, how, like go in and if you could share as much as you feel comfortable kind of going into that inner work, what did you have to um, look at in yourself and what, maybe what practices did you have to really build up yeah. through time and through, um, I heard you say self-compassion, kind of a little bit more gentleness with yourself. If you could take us into that process a little bit, I think people yeah. would really be interested um, what that was like for yeah, you. Yeah, no, I, of course. And like I said, I'm an open book and it's all in my book. <laughs> it's in both of my books. Yes, and the <laughs> that's right. Human Project. I lay it all out there. I have nothing, you know, um, because that is actually part of our healing is to stop hiding and stop yeah. thinking, you know, that we're very special. We're very special, but not through our struggles. We actually have a lot in common. Um, so the first thing I want to say is I didn't do it alone. Um, I, uh, it's a longer story. This is also in the book, but one of my investors um, actually sat me down because I, even as I was hardly functioning, I was not aware and I didn't want to admit it, which I know is also very common. And so he had to sit me down and say, look, you are not okay. And you need to go get help to which I said, of course not. Um, and I kind of try to deny it, but he kind of, he gave me an ultimatum and he brought me to this woman. Her name is Janet. I write a lot about her in both my books who became my teacher and who actually became my spiritual teacher for a few years. But thank God she didn't use the word spiritual for like two years because I had none of that. I have room for none of that. You know, I was a math whiz and a science whiz and my father was a scientist and I grew up very cerebral. So I just want to acknowledge that I didn't do it alone. And for everyone listening, you know, if you're feeling in that really scary place, please recognize that getting help is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign Mm -hmm. that you are a human being. It's confirmation that you're a human being. It's like I say, like when we want to get physically fit, we're all very happy to go get a trainer. Well, if you want to be more emotionally fit, go get a trainer, a therapist, a coach, a advisor, a consultant, anyone. So um, I didn't do it alone, but... um, I I described this in the book. I think you'll get a chuckle out of this, everyone listening. I actually started Googling. Like I Googled things like um, how to to be more spiritual, how to learn to like myself. I actually Googled this for Mm -hmm. for real. Because yeah. uh, I, I had no idea. I had like I had no I didn't even have the language for this. And so I just want to be really open about that. It's not like I was like, oh yeah, let me do these three things. No, I, I was clueless. I'd never done these things. And so 
A couple of things I do want to highlight. Um, at, at, you, you know, I mentioned self-compassion because I would say that at the very core of this inner work, and this was and a really hard but non-negotiable first step was just recognizing that I am a human being. And it sounds kind of like simple, but uh, it's not. Like I had to recognize I'm a human being. What does that mean? That means that I have emotions and they matter. And they're all different ones. And one is not better than the other. I actually have to learn how to handle all of them. I'd never, I kind of, I, I don't think I ever practiced emotional awareness before. And when I began to like listen to my feelings, I just want to be open. I didn't want to, you know, this expression, sit with your feelings. I didn't want to sit with my feelings. I hated my feelings and I wanted them all to go to the closet and go away. <laughs> but so I had to like recognize I am a human being. I have emotions and they are valid. They actually matter. I had to, for the first time in my life, actually recognize that I have a relationship with myself and it's a really terrible one. And this is how I define emotional fitness, by the way. I define emotional fitness as a skill of creating a more supportive relationship with your thoughts, yourself, your emotions, and other people. It is about cultivating that supportive relationship. I had to start to do that. My relationship with myself at the time was like a mix of my toughest critic and a military sergeant, you know, <laughs> never good enough, do more, you're pathetic, you know, treating every mistake as like a mortal sin. Um, and that was a practice of self-compassion, which I didn't know that's what I was doing at the time, but just recognizing that, well, wow, your expectations of yourself are ridiculous and you're not a horrible being because you, you know, didn't do all these things. You're a human. And so mm -hmm. that was a big part of it. Um, and I think the other really huge thing was to start to recognize that just because my brain gives me a thought, I don't have to go along with it. This was, took years. I read every Buddhist book. I went to meditation retreats. I mean, I did all the things and I read every kind of neuroscience research because I'm a total geek, I love all that. And still it was very esoteric. Like all the trainings I went to, they kept saying to just like witness your thoughts or be with your thoughts or you are not your thoughts. And I don't know, that didn't mean anything to me. Yeah. Like what does that mean? So I, like yeah. it was very abstract. Like, I don't know. What do you mean? My thoughts are in my head. Like, what do you mean? I am not my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. I am my thoughts there in my head. And then I had this insight, which is now like, that's what I write about in my book and my work. I realized that I wasn't just my brain, that my brain was mm. part of me, very important part of me, but there was a wisdom to me that was greater than my brain. You know, there's more neurons in our gut than there is in our brain, and there's more neuron connections from our heart to our brain. And in our Western culture, we don't acknowledge that. We just right. kind of focus on the brain. So that to me was a huge piece as well, is just to recognize that I am the editor of my thoughts. And I hear a thought, and then I have a choice. And wow, when my, my, when my brain tells me that I am incompetent or pathetic or how could I do that thing or this is never going to work out, which all increases struggle, I get to edit my thoughts and go, oh, okay, hold on, hold on, brain. And I get to realize that our brain filters thoughts through a lot of filters of negativity bias and confirmation bias. And I get to unfilter. I can choose the lens through which I see myself in the world. And that was a huge piece as well. Wow. Is that, is that kind of also what you mean by the editor is the, the way you can talk back to your brain yes. when you talk about that? Yes. I I, like, it's a huge part of my work. You know, you've seen in my book, I actually give you scripts for how to talk back to your brain. 
I think yeah. it's so powerful to just recognize that you are not your brain. So you have a relationship. That's part of your relationship with yourself. There's your brain giving you thoughts and you, the wiser, greater you, have choices. Mm-hmm. And so I talk a lot about talking back to your brain. You do it. I always tell you, you do it firmly, but kindly because your brain is part of you. So you're not like being mean yeah. to it. But we have to recognize that at its core, our brain only cares about one thing. It only cares about our survival. And that's wonderful because I like being alive. It's a beautiful experience. But that also means that we have to recognize that our brain doesn't really care about our thriving. And which is why I think we are here. We're not here to survive. We are here to thrive, to live, to experience, to do, to create. And the fact that our brain is so focused on survival and has so much fear of possible danger can make those things hard to do. So a lot of these thoughts that cause us struggle, self-doubt, self-harshness, they come from fear. Our brain is afraid that this new thing I'm going to do, what if I fail? Oh my God, people will reject me. I'll be all alone. All alone is scary to the brain. And so we have to learn to talk back to our brain when it gives us these thoughts rooted in fear. We have to firmly but kindly acknowledge the fear, get really honest about it, and then choose to a thought that is actually more helpful. So and yeah, even, we have to do a lot of talking back. Well, you are uh, preaching to our the choir of our <laughs> audience. We, you know, that is a huge message that we teach. And but also, I want to say that I, you are really down to earth in in your book as well. And you know, and we are all like today. You know, like Shelly and I are, you know, we have, and on this week, we have different things coming up. We, while we know all these things, the struggle is still real. Uh, And I appreciate the way that you articulate that in, in your book. Um, that in, in your book, you, 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 um, strike a nice balance between being casual and conversational while also providing us with a lot of very specific tools and directions. Mm-hmm. And also, by the way, I like the, the awards that we're allowed to give ourselves <laughs> yeah, at the, the end of each chapter. Yeah. And, and I want us to give our audience an award at the end of this podcast for the takeaways that they're going to get from us talking to you. So so let's give them something specific and let's talk about your five emotional mm. fitness skills. I love these um, that you discuss in your book. So to help us, and we know it's, it's, it's a work in progress, but how can we, what are those five skills and um, why can they, how can they be vital to our success? Yeah. So um the five core emotional fitness skills. And as you know, uh, you get awards in the book, but you only get them after you practice. So, you know, it's an (laughs) honor code, but in the book, I take you on this five week emotional fitness challenge where you focus on one skill a week and you do get awards, but you know, it's honor code. You got to (laughs) practice. So the five skills um, are, and this is really at the core of creating a supportive relationship with ourselves. Um, The first is acceptance which I define as a skill of looking at a situation with clarity, so focusing on the facts and acknowledging how we feel about it versus judgment. So not going into those dramatic stories that the brain is creating and then using that clarity as your starting point to say, given how this is, given how I feel, what is one thing I could do to move forward with less struggle? What is one thing I could do 
to honor this moment as it is versus how my brain has decided it should be or how I should be. So that skill of acceptance is incredibly powerful because um, it really puts us in the driver's seat of small decisions of big decisions. And our brain doesn't want to practice it. Our brain would rather go on the loop of all the different stories and the ego, but this is why we got to practice. And so in any given moment, when you notice you are struggling internally, when your brain is telling you, oh, this is never going to work out. Here's a worst case scenario. This is not how it should be. You can choose to practice acceptance. You can say, okay, what are the facts I know to be true? How do I feel? And given that, what is one step I could take forward? And it's incredibly empowering. And it's a fantastic mm -hmm. way to reduce that overwhelm. The second skill is gratitude, which is probably familiar to most. But the way that I define gratitude is as a skill of focusing your attention on the small positive moments in your day, even when life is challenging, and being really intentional about sharing your gratitude with others. Your brain has a natural negativity bias, which means our brain notices many more things that are negative or wrong or could go wrong and ignores a lot of things that are good because they're familiar. So when you practice gratitude, you're talking back to your brain and you're saying, dear brain, I know that these things are challenging or wrong. Absolutely. But there are also these things that are kind or joyful or meaningful or comforting, and it helps to balance out your mental lens that it actually fuels your resilience. The third skill is what I call self-care, which I have a very different definition um, from how we talk about self-care in our culture. I define self-care as a skill of fueling your emotional, mental, and physical energy. Hmm. A car needs fuel. So my car still uses gasoline, so let's use that example. So a car needs gasoline to do its job of being a car, right? Like when your car runs out of gas, you don't sit there and go, well, I don't know, do I have time to fill up the car? Or does my car deserve gas? You don't ask those questions. You know you gotta go fill it up because it needs the gas, right? Well, as a human being, your energy is your fuel. And so when we talk about, oh, I don't have time for self-care or I feel guilty about it, well, that can't be when you realize what self-care is. As a human being, you need to have emotional, mental, and physical energy to do all the things you need to do. And when you don't fill up that reservoir of energy, you get to empty. You can give what you don't have. And so self-care is about doing consistent things that fuel your energy and doing fewer things that unnecessarily drain it. The fourth skill of is, is intentional kindness, which I know we talk about random acts of kindness, but I'm asking um, you to think of kindness as something you practice daily, consistently as a skill. And we know this already, but when you do something kind, you feel good. Mm -hmm. It actually releases oxytocin and serotonin. They make you feel good. But it's more than that. One of our core human needs is to feel like we are connected to others, like we belong. And anytime you do something kind, you literally weave that thread of human connection. You remind yourself that you're not alone. And so it's a huge gift to yourself and your own well-being. And it's also an amazing way to fuel your relationships. And then the fifth skill is what I call the bigger why. And it's a skill of connecting to your sense of purpose in life by really thinking about how the daily tasks that you do, the projects, the to-dos, the conversations, all the things that are on our to-do list, how do they help other people? How do they contribute to someone else? How do they help you reach a long-term meaningful goal? That is where we derive a sense of purpose. And our sense of purpose is not somewhere out there. Like we don't need to take a pilgrimage to find it. We don't need to quit our jobs or quit our lives. We just have to choose that lens to look at 
Well, this thing that I'm doing, how does it help someone else? How does it help a colleague, my family, somebody else? That is where we derive a sense of purpose. And when we have a greater sense of purpose, we're better able to manage stress and we actually have more resilience and motivation. So, wow, that's as short as I can make it, but that's the five emotional fitness skills. That was amazing. That was very succinct. There's a lot there. I, I think of the bigger why connecting to the purpose is almost like that that like Maslow's hierarchy of self-actualization and the other four are kind of building to it. Mm-hmm. I, re- I really like those. So I'm going to shift a little bit. Um, you know, I'm so struck by the investor who pulled you aside yeah. and gave you what a, such a gift, which is to see you and see the struggle and try to help pull you out or at least just to, to name it. And I don't, uh, you and I both have shared the experience of, capital B, burnout. And I, I think that a lot of organizations really struggle to create conditions that help people thrive. Mm. So I'm really curious. Um, I don't know many investors who would sit their founders down and say, hey, you know, you, what's going on? You need to pull back. I mean, what a gift that mm. that is. Um, what what a companies need to be thinking about that they're not thinking about to really address systemic burnout. We're all, I think a lot of people are really moving into it in a pretty deep, dark way. So what, what do you, how do you think about that? And what are some, some ideas you could give for people to be thinking for their own companies and organizations? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, and most of my work is with companies and teams. I was telling you that I just finished a keynote on emotional fitness for um, a big company. It's what I do. So it's a, it's a great question. And here's a couple of really specific things. Um, we cannot, and you said it in, in your question, we cannot address the problem without naming the problem. And so, and by that, I don't mean that companies should walk around telling everyone, are you burnt out? Are you burnt out? Are you burnt out? <laughs> right. And which is what some companies are doing. And you know, I want to, it, it's a lot for everyone right now. A lot of leaders like don't know how to handle that. So I, it's, com- I have compassion, but it's like asking people if they're burnt out is not going to help with burnout. Um, so I think it's really important for companies to first and foremost recognize that um, it's humans working for them and not employees and that mm. people's feelings and their inner experience dramatically impacts what they're able to do at work. And to go a step further and actually, and to me, this is about leaders and their teams, right? That's the, that, that's the, the most important relationship is to have open conversations about how people are feeling, which the only way that can happen is if the leader goes first. That's the only mm-hmm. way. You know, I work with so many leaders. I run two leadership programs every year that are virtual programs for leaders. And leaders ask me a lot, you know, how do I help my team not burn out? And they really care. And I ask them, okay, what, how are you practicing self-care? How are you practicing? You can't teach what you don't practice. You can't do it. Just like you can't give what you don't have. I was that leader, okay? I was mm-hmm. that leader who I really cared about my team. I really, really did. Truly, from the depth of my heart. But because I didn't know how to treat myself with compassion, I was uncomfortable talking about my feelings. I, you know, I gave them a lot of cheerleading, but I didn't create a safe place for them to say, wow, Natalie, we're really stressed out. We're going too fast or whatever it is. So the first and most important step is for leaders to practice their own emotional awareness and emotional openness and to actually create opportunities for their teams to share how people are feeling. 
And to guide that discussion without descending into helplessness. You know, there's, I've done a lot of research on leaders who are most effective during crises, which is what I call this time. We are in a crisis and we're going to, the pandemic crisis may be behind us, but the emotional health and mental health crisis is just about to come because now we're, we've survived and now we're actually becoming aware. So the most effective leaders through crises are those who are open about their own emotions and those who create this opportunity for their team to share their emotions, but without descending into helplessness, which is the skill of acceptance. So talk to your team about how you're feeling, invite them to share, but then instead of just staying in that loop, say, okay, this is, this is how we're feeling. What's one thing you could do to support yourself? What's one thing we could do as a team to support each other? That is the most important thing to do right now because um, we can't individually or as a team address something without having full awareness of it. And so I see, and again, I see this um, for leaders and their teams. You know, a lot of people tell me, well, my, the executive leadership and the company, they don't care about it. That's okay. The team environment, you can impact this with people you impact. So that to me is the most important um, thing to do, to do it in one-on-one -on -one conversations and as a team. Um, and also to normalize self-care. Like, I am on this mission that self-care should be as part of our dialogue at work as priorities and projects and deliverables and values. Like, talk about self-care as a non-negotiable skill you need your team to practice, right? So when you have your one-on-ones with your team, talk, you know, you talk about how are you doing on this project, what are you doing to practice self-care this week? How are you fueling your energy? Make it important because your people you impact, they need your permission, right? Self-care is still considered that thing you will do on your own time on the weekend. No, make it important. As a team, talk about this. Make yourself accountable to each other, okay? Um, you can be, and in other words, you can be that investor to me. So you see a team member who is working nonstop, seems really stressed out, sit down with them virtually or in person. Say, hey, listen, I noticed like you seem really stressed out. I, I'd love to talk about it. And you know, here's what I do to fuel my energy. So normalize self-care as something that is a priority at work because uh, without that, it's always gonna be this like soft skill over here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, as I said, um, and the Wall Street Journal uh, did a profile of me and the book before it came out and um, one of the things I said, which I was so great, grateful the reporter captured, um, it's in there. Um, these are not soft skills. These are life needs. And that is the philosophy that we need to bring into the workplace. So we're all aware, right? If an employee tells you that they haven't eaten in a day, it would cause concern. You'd be like, wow, you don't have an energy. Well, that's physical yeah. energy. But we also need the same care and attention to our emotional and mental energy. Yeah, and I, I, um, in conversations with leaders, that they there's so much kind of dissonance around that. You know, they're they're holding kind of these competing values or competing expectations between. Um, I need to achieve. I need a certain salary. I need to drive. I need to, and and you may have experienced this too, Natalie, as in your work, like that. Uh, there's that driven part 
And it's almost like the there is a separateness between that and the self-care. It's like having a really hard time for them to coexist in a work environment. And I see people really struggle that. It's like they feel like they have to pick one up or put one down mm. and, and merging the two in practice. I think in theory, people give a lot of lip service to self-care, but in practice, I think mm. a lot of people are really scared um, if I do that, what do I have to sacrifice? What do, what's the risk? Am I not going to advance my career? Am I going to look like I'm lazy? Am I, you know, and so, it, so I think it's, it's so tricky for a lot of people to really be countercultural in a lot of ways and kind of uh, audacious and yeah, bold and like risk. Um, and I think until you get to the point where we maybe were, the risk isn't there quite yet. (laughs) Like we really, we have to do the work to integrate those two things. Um, and so if if it's not like my life depends on it, then maybe people don't, don't want to do that. Because I I I mean, you're bringing up really, but I don't have a simple answer because these are not simple things, but you're bringing up really key points. And the thing that I, um, the thing that I would say is if we're really honest with ourselves, and there's, you know, there's a whole chapter on courage in my book, and it's not courage outwardly, it's actually courage of self-awareness. Mm. If we're really yeah. honest with ourselves, we know, every single person knows, that when we are depleted, the work we're doing is not good. It's not. Mm-hmm. We actually aren't able to drive our career to a place we want it to be. You may have finished those emails at midnight, but I can guarantee you those emails are crap. You may have given that talk when you're completely depleted, but I can tell you it's not very impactful. So I think we have to get honest about without investing in our own energy, without taking care of ourselves, how good is our work? And it is countercultural because we live in a very visible culture of busyness, right? So we Mm -hmm. feel like if I just sit here, you know, for 10 hours, I'm doing work. I'm doing a lot of crap work but I'm definitely not doing work that's going to help me be successful. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that is that's that we have to get honest about that with ourselves. We just do. Yeah. Right. One of the, Oh, did you want to say something? Well, I was just going to say that takes us back to sort of like point a of acceptance that, you know, we are human beings, not human doings. And there you have to accept some limitations. And you're, I agree. I don't see a lot of leaders necessarily doing that. But I hope that these, these messages are ha- coming through before they're burning out. You know, uh, people have down. asked me, I just want to address this. People have asked me this question directly of, do I feel um, that my burnout was necessary for me to change how I lived and worked? And My answer is this, and in my case, it was, but you don't need to burn out, but you do need some kind of what I call interruption of inertia. So our brains have a lot of inertia. The human brain just, you know, it's like Newton's law. An object of motion is gonna remain in motion. If you've always, like, this is your construct, this is your philosophy of life, I gotta always stay busy to get ahead. I gotta push hard, like, I gotta struggle. That's the inertia. That's the mental lens. It's very hard to change. You need some kind of an interruption. Now, unfortunately, for many people, we wait for that interruption. In my case, in your case, right, we burn out. 
but you, you can create that interruption in other ways. I mean, ultimately, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to be that interruption. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> I'm trying to be that bright, I yellow, like loud, compassionate, but firm interruption for people, right? It's why I share my story. So we do need some kind of interruption, but we can, through courageous awareness, we can create our own interruption, right? And I, mm-hmm. you know, I, I worked with a lot of leaders who, when they go through the training with me, or they just have this emotional awareness where they realize, wow, I'm actually not doing great work. Mm-hmm. And that sucks because I want to be yeah. doing great work. Or I really care about my team, but I don't think I'm doing my best for them because I'm so tired all the time or I'm struggling so much. So you can create your own interruption, but it does require some kind of interruption of inertia. Otherwise, your brain is just going to, yep, this is the way it is. You know, our brain is pretty stubborn that way. One of the things that I would encourage people to do, this little thought exercise of playing it forward, Mm. um, and it's sometimes the only thing for me even now, knowing what I know, it works, where I do play it forward in terms of if I make this decision repeatedly, what's the cost? And the only thing that really grabs for me my attention is if it's a cost to my marriage, Mm. my children, or my health. So relationships that are really important to me or my health. Like I really, um, if I'm honest with myself and accept those things, that's become my interrupter Mm. where I really have to stop and reevaluate. So Mm -hmm. playing those things forward Um, And it does require a lot of self-honesty. Like I know if I keep doing this right now, it's not going to end well for me. So I need to Mm reevaluate. That's hard to do. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I agree. I think we we have to do those things. That's um, not only are we not contributing what we should be and could be to the world, (laughs) but we're also not living out the way that we that it's healthy for us. Yeah, and yeah. I also think, you know, I love what you just said about playing it forward and almost like, um, I guess a corollary to that is to ask yourself, like, how do you want to experience your life? Because mm-hmm. that's the other part of my inner work as we're talking about that I think, it, you know, I want to mention that I kind of always had this, it wasn't conscious, um, or maybe a little bit conscious, but I had this idea of like, Okay, at some point I'll do enough and then I can like enjoy my life. (laughs) And well, that's just a bunch of BS because the brain doesn't work like that, okay? We have to just like for a moment have a little neuroscience. Your brain is very adaptable. Now it's really good because the brain adapts to all the challenges, very good. But the downside of that is our brain really gets used to good stuff too. And then after a while that like, good stuff is not good stuff anymore. It's just normal stuff. In my first book, Happier and I, I call this the curse of the moving baseline. You know, Mm -hmm. work yourself, you work yourself, you're like, okay, but once I get that promotion, okay, then I'll feel great, then I'll relax. And you get that promotion. And for the first week, you're like, feel amazing. Like, yes. But then your brain stops producing dopamine. Your brain is like, oh, this is normal. This is like the new normal. What's next, right? Our brain is very future focused and it gets used to all the things. And what's more, then the negativity bias comes in. It's like, okay, you know what? This job is actually annoying. This job that you thought was perfect is actually super annoying. The commute sucks. The boss sucks. The other one's better. So the negativity bias and the adaptability, all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, this is not good enough. What's next? So this idea that 
Okay, well now I'm gonna struggle. Now I'm gonna work myself to the bone. Now I'm not gonna enjoy anything I'm doing because I'm so exhausted. But then eventually, like once I've done enough, that's how I lived, I'll do it. Well, we gotta call BS on that too. So you wanna play it forward and I'm offering, you also just have to think about, is this how I want to experience my life? Because again, like, you're a human being, not a human doing, and you're not a machine, and this is not a checklist. Like, our life is not a checklist. And the checklist is, it'll be forever. There is no, like, it, there'll never be enough. And so I think to me that's also a really important question to ask yourself in the now. Like, is this the experience I want to have of my daily life? Because life is not forever. And mm. that's actually something to remember. And for me, I think that was also a huge thing of... Uh, this is a day, like I want to experience my day. It doesn't mean I always feel good. It doesn't mean every day is like, oh, joy, no. But I actually want to be alive. Like I want to live. I don't just want to be like this machine being busy, exhausted all the time. So I think that's also an important thing to ask yourself. Like mm -hmm. what do you want your daily experience to be? Yeah, well, that is, I love that. That's an important thing for me to be thinking about. And it's ins I feel inspired, so I, I know that it's going to channel through to our listeners. Uh, Natalie, last question. You know, if someone was going to get the big prize, the big award for reading your book, the overall, what's what's one, the one thing mm. that you would want your your reader to take away from uh, what, what would you hope it would be? Yeah, well, here's what I would hope it would be. I would hope it would be the recognition that goes to the title of my book and why I called it that, that there is an awesome human inside every single one of us. So I firmly believe, and I don't have to know a single one of your listeners to know this about them, that you have, we all have this unique, awesome capacity to create to be a force of good in our families, our communities, our teams, we can create a positive impact in our lifetime. That's the awesome part. But we're also human, which means we can't always do it perfectly and we absolutely cannot do it all and we need to fuel our energy and we need to rest and we need to treat ourselves with compassion and we need to talk back to our brain to remove those mental blocks. We're awesome and we're human. And the practice of life, to me, the whole gig is about embracing our awesome human. All of that, which is what we've been talking about. And so to me, that's the takeaway is to both reconnect. I think we've all gotten disconnected from our inner goodness, our uniqueness, and our humanness. And so to embrace that and then practice. Being human is practice. It's hard. Like we got to practice. And so to reconnect to that awesomeness and your humanness, and then on a day-to-day, -day, like we've talked about a bunch of things, to commit to practicing these emotional fitness skills so that you can honor your humanity so that you can do all of those awesome things. Because back to where we started, you can't do one, one without the other. You can't give what you don't have. You can't be awesome without honoring your humanness. I That's that. awesome. So I just want to say thank you. And it is so fun to meet you. Uh, I've followed you and your work for a very long time. Oh, I was the director you. of happiness. Um, about the same time you were doing Happier. Mm. So 
your our work is kind of intersected and paralleled, and I've watched you from afar for a very long time. Um, we are definitely soul sisters in this oh, way. I love that. Thank you. That yeah. So I really, um, I just love your work, and I hope that we can stay in contact with each Please. other and support each other, um, and know that we're cheering for you here in in Chattanooga. Thank you. I so appreciate that, and I appreciate you both, and I really appreciate the honesty and thoughtfulness in this conversation. Um, I think that's that's what helps me bring my best, the humanness and the awesomeness, and um, yes. I'm really grateful for that. So thank you, and thank you to everyone um, who's listening. I'm so grateful we got a chance to do this. Yeah, we did too. And yeah, tell us where can we uh, find you? I know it's Natalie with a Y, Kogan.com. And, and where else, Natalie? Yeah, so NatalieKogan.com is my website. You can also go to happier.com where you get to learn about all my happier work programs and my leadership training programs. Um, and I'm all I'm on all the socials, Instagram and LinkedIn are my two favorites. And I'm Natalie Kogan, so it's N-A-T-A-L-Y Kogan. I'm pretty easy to find. Happier.com. What a great web uh, address. Yeah, we'll make sure to link everything in our show notes so people can yeah. can find you. Yeah, thank you so much, Natalie. Been a delight. Thank you both. I'm so grateful. Yes, for thank you. you. Stay in touch. Please let us know when this is released so we can share it with our community too.